Hello and welcome to The Beautiful Game, a series exploring personal improvement and resiliency through interviews with soccer coaches from around the world. Beautiful Game is brought to you by Weasels FC, a brand for the tenacious, quick-witted, and occasionally underestimated. I am your host, Tony Niccolo. Join me as we learn to live, work, and play better with more confidence, resilience, and success. So I'm here today in the Atlantic Coast Conference offices with the commissioner of the ACC, John Swafford. As I checked, he's still the only player at Wilkes High School to have his his number retired because he was uh, MVP athlete in basketball track and in uh, what we call at the beautiful game American football, sometimes referred to as as gridiron. And uh, he played at North Carolina where he won an ACC title. And he was the athletic director at the University of North Carolina for 17 years, working with some Hall of Fame coaches like Dean Smith and Anson Dorrance. So really pleased to be here with you today, John. Tony, it's great to be with you. So, John, when you were just getting started in your career, you had the fortune of the athletic director at North Carolina, Bill Kobe, who had a penchant for working with young talent. He had brought in Anson Dorrance. He brought you in. And so I'm wondering, as your career has grown, how do you promote and nurture young talent and make sure they get opportunities? Well, I think any time when you're hired, as I was at a very young age, for a lot of responsibility, you you don't have a lot of fear of doing the same thing with other younger people throughout your career. I mean, I had people give me chances at a, at a young age. And I've tried to do the same thing if if I feel like they're the best fit for the position and the best person for the f- position. And I think a lot of it's just not, <clears throat> excuse me, not being afraid that an individual doesn't have enough experience and being willing to take a chance on people if you feel like the fundamentals are there and it's the right fit, the right person, and the capability is there and allow that person to grow and to evolve. As I said, I was given that opportunity, and and I've tried to pass that along, uh, pass it forward, if you will. And how do you sort the wheat from the chaff there, where, you know, there are unfortunately lots of of younger folks these days who finish school and think they're ready to be the CEO, that sense of entitlement. How how do you separate the, the folks that actually are ready and worthy of the chance? I think you have to really look deeply into the individual and what their experiences have been, look at their maturity level, look at their genuineness, uh, look at whether they think they know everything or not, because the ones who know they don't know everything are the ones who are most ready, I have found, at a young age to take on a lot of responsibility and and leadership. And ultimately, when you get, get through all the things you think you can measure, there's a lot of intuition in it and trust in your ability to evaluate people. And I love hiring people, I always have, whether it was coaches, whether it was administrators. Not everybody enjoys the hiring process for whatever reason I always have. You never bat a thousand with hiring people, but I've had I've you had pretty still good luck. Rem- remember I, one you've I, got wrong? I've had, I, I, yeah, and you, you definitely remember the ones you get wrong. But you also definitely remember the the ones you get right. And uh, fortunately, with the help of other people staff-wise that I involved in the hiring process, 
we've been right a lot more than we've than we've been wrong. But you know, again, I, I think you just have to look at the at the individual, and regardless of, of age and experience, what's the right fit for the needs of the organization at that particular time. Well, and when you were at the University of North Carolina, you had that opportunity to work with some some coaching legends like Anson Dorrance and and Dean Smith. And um, what did you learn from them? Well, I, I think I learned that there there are there are differences in how people lead. There's not a cookie cutter approach, and that the great ones who are great over an extended period of time, as the two that you just mentioned were, and Anson still is, have an ability to to change with changing circumstances and change with different eras, and how, in this case, their student athletes, their players, change. You know, a lot of people really struggle with change, and and you can't coach young people the same today that you could in 1980 or 1990 or, or 2000. I mean, the players that are coming into the collegiate environment in the last 10 years have had very different experiences growing up than the ones who came along when, when I came along, for instance. And the great coaches have that ability to adjust to changing times. So I certainly have, have seen that. But I think I've also seen there's certainly similarities to to great coaches and great leadership. And I think, first of all, it has to do with trust and, and, and it has to do with passion, energy and what their values are and how they relate to the people they are leading. But I, I'm a big believer that you can't lead without trust. A common thread certainly is that people like Anson Dorrance and Dean Smith and, and Mac Brown, they vote trust in their players. Players trust them and uh, trust them that they're going to do the right thing for the player individually, although it may not always seem that way at the time, and that they're going to do the right thing in leading a a team and what's best for the team. That's because their their players believe that those coaches care about them have their yeah, have exactly. their best they, interests they, they believe heart, they know what they're winning right? they believe they know what they're doing and they believe that they care about them as individuals you know coaches can can say they treat everybody the same and in a way that's true but the great ones also find the differences in what brings out the best in each individual player and so anson in 1986 came to you and said I'm coaching both the men and the women. I don't want to coach the men anymore. Can we split it so that I can just coach the women? And I want to hear about why in 1986 it couldn't work. Maybe it was just purely finances. And then three years later, you guys figured out a way to make it work. What was that sort of change and and trust process there, or was it just economics? No, it wasn't just economics at all. It was, it was, uh, that was part of it, but it was also competitiveness within the Atlantic Coast Conference. We were, when we started women's soccer at, at North Carolina under Bill Kobe, and I, I was Bill's assistant at the time, and whom we talked about, you know, Anson started out coaching both teams. He had a full complement of scholarships right off the bat with the women's team. Men's soccer at the time, simply because of the fact that it had evolved more over over a period of time collegiately was much more competitive in the ACC. And it was harder and harder to keep up 
on the men's side. And we were having tremendous success on the women's side. And in conversations that, you know, that Anson and I were having, it was like, well, to maintain, because it's going to get more competitive on the women's side. And to maintain what was being accomplished on the women's side and to get to the top on the men's side was going to almost be impossible for anybody, even Anson, to do both uh, both sports because both sports were becoming much more competitive. And so we, we had those conversations and, and figured out a way to move forward. We had an excellent assistant coach, uh, Elmar Bolovich, who, uh, who followed Anson on the men's side. I thought Anson would probably need to have a couple of days to think about whether he wanted, because I wanted him to have his choice of whether he coached the men or the women. I thought he would he would have some heartburn about that and agonize over it. He didn't at all. He, he was immediate in, in his desire to uh, continue to coach, uh, coach the women. And ultimately, we promoted Elmar to uh, head coach of, of the men, and he did very, very well. And he had learned a lot from, from Anson as well. So it worked out beautifully all the way around. And in your playing career, well, actually, let's, let's talk about it this way. Last year, you helped start the ACC uh, Mental Health and Wellness Summit. I walked into your office today, and the cover of NCAA Champion Magazine, the cover story is this article that's titled Man Up. And it's about an image of what healthy masculinity looks like. And so I, I want to know a bit about the impetus behind the Mental Health and Wellness Conference or, or Summit. And then also, how do we move beyond the sort of antiquated notions of mental health as toughness or the absence of any negative thoughts or, or emotions to a more holistic view of the world where we acknowledge that we have negative emotions sometimes or negative feelings and that we develop the, the sort of mental tools to deal with those things and we acknowledge vulnerability and that we need to live in a world where we're caring and, and have trust and connection can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, the impetus, Tony, really for our folk, conference focus on mental health really came from talking with, with in different formats with our coaches throughout the league in various sports, men and women, about all of the, the issues that student-athletes have about their reluctance to really talk about them because of a fear that it would make them feel or be perceived as less of an, of an athlete and that we really didn't have the kind of resources on our campuses to assist athletes that, that were having you know, just the normal issues that college students have and, and that we all have at right. one time or another but with in added, our lives. Added but, pressure but, of but performance the added that... pressure of, of performance. And it, so it's just those issues can just be ex accentuated by the time demands and the pressure to perform academically and athletically and, and the belief that athletes, because they are particularly good at a particular skill or, or sport, a lot of them have a great deal of notoriety, and they're on a pedestal to a degree in the eyes of many. And there's a fear, generally speaking, to 
let your humaneness show, if you will, that, you know, we're, we're athletes are not supposed to have those issues. You're supposed to be stronger than that or tougher than that or whatever it might be. People seem to have the attitude that, well, you know, athletes don't don't have the problems that normal, quote, <laughs> normal people, normal people have. Well, well athletes are, are normal people that that have a particular skill level in a particular sport have all the issues and problems and and life challenges that anyone else has and in fact sometimes even even more and yet there's that concern that it would be misconstrued if you let someone know about that or ask for help athletes are not the best in the world at asking for someone else's help because they want to do it themselves that's their a lot of a lot of athletes just that that's second nature so from hearing about this over and over and over again from coaches and, and our student-athlete uh, uh, advisory councils at our various 15 schools and at the league level as well, we just felt like it was time for the conference as a whole to bring everybody together. We're going to do it annually to talk about mental health and, and share, uh, share stories, share best practices from institution to institution. And we want to really push our institutions to provide the kind of resources that our athletes might need in terms of of mental health. And, you know, it's probably something we should have done a long time ago, but I'm very proud of the fact that it's being done now. And and we, as I said, intend to make it an annual summit and an annual uh, ongoing focus. This obviously is not something you decide, well, let's solve this, let's do this one time, and then that's over with and we've solved the the issue. It's really a process that will, I'm sure, go on for years and and generations and, and be something that can be really, really helpful to the growth and development of our student athletes. You know, you look back at college athletics and there was a big push when to... When you were... Yeah, the starting quarterback it, it, at the University of North Carolina. Yeah, they uh, and the big man on campus. I, I'm sure you never had any any challenges or negative emotions. Oh gosh, I, I <laughs> wish I'd had some people that I was comfortable talking with yeah. at, at that time. I had a lot of injuries when I when I played. Yeah, and, and, figuring and that out how can you come be back and, how do you come back yeah. from that, and how frustrating that can be, and how it can affect your confidence, yeah. and so on and so forth. And that's where we're really trying to go with this as a true resource for our athletes to help them through whatever problems are there and to make them more comfortable that, you know, we all have problems and it's okay to have problems. That's just a part of human experience. And and certainly it is in athletics. And we don't need to any longer look at that as as a weakness. It's just a part of life. and, And we're here to help each other through it. Whether it be academically, whether it could, whether it's health-wise, whether it's competitively, whatever it might be, and and you don't want the stigma attached that I think for years was to issues of of that nature. Yeah, it's you know it's the same as playing hurt. Right. Uh, you know you should be right. tough and and play through it. It's a great initiative. And in your career as a player, were there any particular coaches along the way that taught you mental skills or resilience, either consciously or you realized it years later? Well, a lot of resilience. I'll I'll certainly say that at every level. And I had a high school football coach who was phenomenal and who meant an awfully lot to me because 
of the fact that he believed in, in me before I believed in myself. You know, I appreciated how much confidence that gave me. And uh, my father had died when I was 13 years old, and that coach became a bit of a father figure at a very formative time. I think any of us that have played athletics for any length of time have coaches that have had a tremendously positive impact on us. And certainly at the collegiate level, Bill Dooley was my college coach. Vince Dooley's brother, Vince, coached at Georgia, Bill, at at North Carolina. He was a little old school and tough, but you learned a lot in terms of getting through problems and issues and seeing things through to the end and what you had to invest from a training standpoint, from a commitment standpoint in order to be a a champion. I was at Carolina as a player for five seasons, had to set out one year totally with an illness. And so I missed a year. I had shoulder problems. I had uh, broken wrist and a broken thumb. And, you know, things kind of kept piling up. And we weren't very good in my freshman year. And then by my senior year, we won the ACC championship. So, so the experience of of coming into a program that was not very competitive and then leaving it as an ACC champion really meant a lot to me. And looking back on it, I learned a great deal in terms of how you, how you build a program and, it, and that it had to be a process. You've taken that learning and as you, in your role here at the ACC, have have rolled out lots of, of new things. One of those uh, was last year in the, in the summer of 2019, the ACC network finally launched. But that's been the culmination of, of years of work and, and a process like you described. Do you have advice for managing those types of complex projects with sort of competing interests and multiple stakeholders? Well, yes, I do. And number one, you have to have some patience and you have to understand that there are going to be some roadblocks along the way and not get too discouraged by those roadblocks. Know what your end goal is and be able to keep your focus on that on that end goal in spite of the obstacles that might be there and take the time to, to have your strategy and understand that that strategy may need to be altered along the way. There's seldom a, a straight line that, that everything goes exactly the way you would want it to go or that you had strategized that it would go. So all of those things come into play and patience and persistence maybe being at the height of that kind of project because it literally took years. And sometimes you have to do A to get to B and B to get to C. Sometimes things are very linear, not always, but in this case it was because as a conference... We had to change who we were in order to have the opportunity to partner with ESPN to have an ACC network that was on air 24-7 and all about Atlantic Coast Conference sports. We were a nine-member league. We weren't big enough. We didn't have a large enough geographic footprint. We didn't have enough television sets in the league. So A was to expand. And, and we went from, from 9 to 12 and then ultimately to 15 members. That, that's our current membership. And that took uh, basically a decade to do. 
but it happened and it wasn't an easy road, particularly in the early years of that expansion. But it's where we needed to be. We also, as a league, had to get better in football because the business model in college athletics was changing and more and more dominated by the sport of football, Mm -hmm. American football. (laughs) And so we had to encourage the uh, programs in our conference that, you know, this is a changing business model. We've been predominantly a, a, a basketball-centric league for a long time. We don't want to lose that, but we want to get better in football collectively. And our schools responded to that and have done that. So those are some of the things that we had to do along the way. This job is a lot about consensus building because with 15 schools, you're asking those schools, A, to compete with each other at the highest level in this conference in multiple sports, but B, we want you to sit around a conference table and be friends and understand what's best for the collective whole. And sometimes that's not necessarily best for every single individual university and program that's around that table. So it's a, it's a trick, tricky dynamic, and our schools really have responded well to that. I think we have a tremendous culture. We talked about trust early on in, in, in this conversation. I think trust comes into play uh, in terms of trust in the conference office, but also trust with each other around the table, AD to AD, president to president, coach to coach. That that all comes into play, too. So it's been challenging, but it's also been very, very gratifying. There's a classic book on, on building businesses called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. And that sort of nonlinear path, there's a part of the path that he refers to as the trough of despair. Were there any times, uh, any anecdotes about times where you thought this it was going sideways for, for getting the network together or or even any of the steps along the way? Well, there were at both, particularly the, our first expansion when we went from 9 to 12 was uh, particularly challenging. The later expansions flowed much uh, much more smoothly and, and unanimously. The, the first expansion, we didn't have unanimity around our our table, but we had enough votes to make it happen. So we had to wade uh, through that, and then there were some there were some tough, challenging times with that. And then with the network, we had focused on a 2017 launch, and then after a lot of discussion with ESPN, we decided to put it off until 2019, which was a, a disappointment. And yet, this is where kind of patience and persistence comes in. Yet it made logical sense that we were much more likely to have a successful launch in 2019 than in 2017 for for multiple reasons. But it was still hard to put the launch off, even though logically you you knew that it was it was the right thing to do. But when when we got there, it was the right thing to do, which made it worthwhile. And with something like launching a network. You get one chance to do it right. And if it's not right the first time, it's really hard to recover from that. So we made the right decision, but it it really took some patience. In technology, we say if you aren't unhappy with the first version of the product that you've launched, you're too late. Building a network, of course, you've got to have the product to sort of a, a minimum valuable state. But I imagine that there's still lots of things even in, in 
despite that delay, there are still lots of things that you want to add and improve from a content standpoint and from how the network operates. Oh, I think that I think there will be. And we're learning with ESPN as we go through this. Fortunately, I think we've got the best sports partner you can possibly have in in sports television in ESPN. So we feel really good about that. We're not even through the first year. And while we're extraordinarily pleased with how things have gone, certainly we understand there are things to learn, as does ESPN, as to what can be better going forward, because you're, you never max out. I mean, you can always be better. There's no question about that. And so in an enduring, successful career, that notion of, of that you can always be better, how do you make sure you're evaluating your own work and, and that you're personally constantly doing better work and, and improving? Well, I, I think having different people take a look and give you feedback at, uh, as to what you're doing, and both personally and organizationally, I think that's very important. Making sure that, that you are stepping out of your, your comfort level. And I think the, in, in a way, the longer you do something, and this is my 23rd year as commissioner of the ACC, it's more and more challenging to, to step out of your comfort level because it's awfully easy if things are going well to, to just stay in that comfort level and just, but you can't ever have the attitude of, well, I'm comfortable doing this. This is the way we've always done it, which is the worst reason to do anything. And I think it's also making sure that because any organization has some turnover and you always want people coming in and, and people in the organization and people around you that will will challenge the, the status quo to a degree, not to turn over the whole organization, but to, you know, to question things and, and to just continue to make certain that you're over, you know, you're really take, taking a step back and looking at things and asking yourself, why why are you doing it this way? And making sure the answer is not because... That's just the way, that's how we do it. And we don't have a lot of turnover, but we have enough that I think it keeps our organization fresh, particularly if you hire the right people. Hiring the right people is so critical. Mm -hmm. And I guess like you described, the ACC is like sort of many successful Fortune 500 companies and institutions. It can be monolithic. It can be hard to change. There can be lots of norms and mores around the way that you do things that, that have, are part of the reason why you've been successful in the past. But I think that what you've described from a personal standpoint and professionally is that you've sort of managed to take a page from Buckminster Fuller's playbook and steer the ship into, into new waters without crashing, using the, the trim tab to make changes like First, the Athlete Advisory Committee, the expansion, the network. We're in a time where, where college athletics is changing. You've expressed the notion that, that amateurism will be redefined. It's, it's happened in the Olympics, and, and you think it's going to happen in college athletics. But universities themselves as institutions are, are also changing from just research-oriented to to more performance-oriented overall. You know, the most extreme example being a, a technology-based company called Lambda School, where all of the students are sort of remote, 
There's no tuition paid up front anyhow. You sign an income sharing agreement, and once you're hired as an engineer, then you pay a percentage of your income back. But they're essentially guaranteeing that you're going to get a job. They're willing to invest in you up front in terms of a statement of trust. That's mm -hmm. a pretty yeah. strong one. Yes, it is. You know, they need to be pretty sure about the candidates that they let in. But how do you embrace change when it's so difficult for many people? And I'm sure it's difficult even for some people that you've you've hired. So how do you embrace change and keep the ACC as an organization adaptable? I think a lot of it, Tony, is attitudinal. One of my favorite quotes is that the, the only constant in life is change. And yet change, for most people, if they're not aware of, of what change is and, and the positives that can come with change, it's hard. Human nature is, is to resist change, I think. And so I think you have to, I don't know if preach is the right word, but I, I think you have to advocate for an environment in which people are conditioned to expect change and accept change. If you don't nourish that kind of environment, change can be very, very difficult for an organization or, or an individual or, or a group of people. So I think it's something you talk about and you nourish all the time. Because to one degree or another, change is happening all the time. If your organization and the people you're trying to lead are conditioned to realize that change really is kind of the normal flow of life. Right. It's not abnormal. Uh, it's, it's not abnormal. It's normal. But unless you point that out and you and you live it and you make it conscious, make it conscious. I find that a lot of people, just, they don't think that way. That's that's not the norm. <laughs> Very few people think that way normally. And yet when you when you talk about it and you get people thinking about it and realizing how normal that is, then it's not so much of a threat. It can be exciting. And so I think you have to I think you have to nourish that kind of environment. To build a culture that supports it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks so much, John. Tony, great to be with you. Thank you for joining us today on The Beautiful Game. We hope you also have some new ideas and inspiration to live, work, and play better. Please subscribe to get future episodes. And you can join the conversation with your host, Tony Niccolo, on Twitter at WeaselsFC. FC.